0: The decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' Church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the Evangelical Church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series, have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series, and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming
1: Bystander
0: Christianity.
1: This section out of the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I look and looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow and a crown, was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, you can tell from the text that that what John is describing here is a continuation of chapter 5 where he described uh, the line of Judah that appeared as a land that was slain. We looked at that last week and we saw that he was really describing Jesus and now in the sixth chapter that scroll that appeared in the in the fifth chapter with the seven seals on it he begins to open the seals and he's going to open the first four of them fairly quickly and they're distinguished from seals five six and seven so we'll kind of slow down as we look at that but I wanted you to kind of comprehensively take in the the force the the first the breaking of the first four seals rather and and be able to comprehend what it is that's kind of going out from the throne and what's happening. The title of this series is Overcoming Bystander Christianity in the sense that we're we're trying to kind of probe the thinking of some of you that uh, that for years perhaps has been kind of stuck in a perspective of this book of Revelation in the last book of the Bible in a perspective that is so rigid and so tight that it scarcely allows you to comprehend another interpretation Um, perhaps the the first sermon was relatively easy on me the the second and the third sermon took a lot of discipline for me because it required that we just slow down to say okay what is it that John is actually saying about the events that are about to take place or the events that he's recording and we looked at what they call the didactic portions in, in the beginning of chapter one and the latter part of chapter twenty two they they're like like parentheses and john there clearly is speaking without any figurative language at all and he is telling you about what he's about to record and what he's he's writing in the sixth chapter we begin to see a, a very very interesting kind of pivot in the way that that you think about this book Um, I really don't think you can really be in the middle. That doesn't mean that you need to feel any sort of pressure before you would leave today in understanding this, but I think that there's a lot at stake here. Now, over the last couple of months, since we've been in this series, I've had a lot of interaction with people, even in different countries, that follow the podcast, and I've had several people ask me this one question that I want to answer before we begin this morning, that they've been able to say well if it isn't future then what benefit is this in other words it's I've tried to explain it it's almost like driving in a heavy snowstorm and when you first turn on your windshield wipers after the snow begins to collect it it like wipes it clean and you can see but you can't see without the wipers continuing and it's almost as if these questions or that particular question is saying well, if it isn't, if we're not looking into the future at this horrific descent of the world into this chaos that's being described here, then what possible benefit could it be for us to spend so much time in this book? And what I want to show you today is that I think that there's a lot of time. I, I don't believe that, that what we're looking at until after we get through chapter 18 is really future. There's certainly some futuristic parts to it. But what I want to show you today is that there is something about the greatness of the kingdom that, that has, has taken place, that many of us are missing. I, I firmly believe, after counseling Christians for over 20 years now, that it seems as if the majority of Christians, not just small a small majority, but the, the greater majority of Christians, it's almost as if they want to believe more than they believe. It seems almost as if there's some sort of a ceiling on your believing. And we settle for things that, that I think oftentimes cause us to, to exist in churches, to spend even decades of our time not really accomplishing anything. And all the while we're trying to convince ourselves that we believe so much. And it seems almost as if it, there, there's some deep honesty or integrity inside of us that tells us that there, there should be more to it than this. I, I, I work with church planners all over the country, and, and that oftentimes is the, you know, what attends a startup, where you come and you, you work to the point of fatigue in preparing a service, and then you pack it all up and you go home, and then you wonder after about six months, wow, it, it seems almost as if I've gone stagnant. And I, I think the greatness of the kingdom, for the most part, is being missed. And in many of our lives, the reason that we lack motivation is that we haven't seen it yet. And so what I hope will happen over the next several weeks as we begin to work through this is to show you the grandeur of something that that we're not only to see, but we're to experience. And I hope to be able to show you that. So this morning, I want to begin by by setting the scene for you. It's important that we do that every time because I'm not going to assume that you're making all the observations that are necessary to kind of create in your mind's eye a portrait or a picture that you're looking at to try to imagine what John is describing. So the setting of the scene, the the scene or the setting rather, that we we see in this, this sixth chapter is very interesting. And the first observation I draw your attention to is the location because it changes vastly. We saw in chapter one that John is on Patmos. He's in a prison there. He's being, he's malnourished, he's in a, it's a penal colony, and it's just a little really hard rock that he's living on. Um, But he's taken in chapters 2 and 3, he's given, he's given this dictation, and he dictates the letters to the churches. In chapter 4, he is taken in the spirit to the throne room of God, and then chapter 5, Jesus comes in, and Jesus is the one that's worthy to open the seals, but the location changes very quickly here in verses 1, 3, 5, and 7. John is summoned by an angel. The angel tells him to command him to come, and he's summoned to view events away from the throne, uh, which he describes in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so he's not staying in, a, in this physical location, he is taken almost in his mind's eye to, to view these events. And what it is that's transpiring is these seals are opened up um the word earth appears two two times in these verses in verse four and verse eight and i've told you before that the word gaze is the term the term uh, in the original language throughout the bible the overwhelming uh translation of that into english is the land like in the old testament when it talks about the tribes of the land it's this concept And I think it's important to see that the majority of English translations are actually taking a kind of subordinate position when they say earth. And so if you see it that way, you're really beginning to see that that John is being taken to the land, I believe primarily to the land of Israel. I think the scope of what's described actually extends beyond the border of Israel, but its primary uh, intention or the focus of it is in Israel. The second part of the scene that I think is very important is the distinction of these four, first four seals from seal five, six, and seven, the next three, and each is presented by an announcement from one of the four living creatures, and that distinguishes from the, from the last three, but secondly, each has the appearance, each of the seals is marked by the appearance of a, of a horse with a rider on it which it doesn't happen in, in uh, seal 5, 6, and 7. So th- these are, I think, intended to kind of function together. Um, the third part of the, the scene that I think is important is what he tells us about Jesus in your focus on this, because Jesus is shown here to be both the revealer of the content of the seal as well as the one that's actually setting in motion everything that happens from opening the seal. In other words, Jesus is not up there thinking, wow, I, I, we just need to be nice and all settle down and get along. This is Jesus that's breaking the seals and everything that flows out of him. It's coming from him and from the throne room of God. The last thing is the recipients. And this is where I'm probably going to begin to kind of push against, kick against the goads of some of your thinking here, is that the recipients are not Christians. This is not persecution that's kind of just like a, a huge funnel draw, drawing everything into it. And we can tell that by verse 8, that death comes and it's bringing Hades behind it. That tells you it's not Christians. Christians don't go to Hades. And you don't have hell. This morning even as I was reading it, I can't help but think of Johnny Cash's song. And you know, in, in that song, song by Johnny Cash, it's hell is following with him. And there's a punishment coming that shows there in that verse 8. That it is not a, only a physical punish, punishment, there's a spiritual punishment coming behind it. And it's very, very germane, I think, to, to kind of get that clarified in your mind. The next point that I want to go back to is that some of you expressed some questions about the scroll. And obviously the focal point is the scroll. And I wanted to take a little bit of time again. In verse 1, there's a scroll that he, he looks at. This is chapter 5. There's a scroll that is written within and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. And I told you last week, the word for scroll is a, the Greek term biblion, when we get the, our term Bible from it. But it represented a legal document, and most particularly a certificate of divorce. Now, I, I want to lay a foundation for you to understand that, because I believe that this, that this is exactly what God required in the Old Testament, that that his relationship to Israel was portrayed as a marriage covenant throughout the Old Testament. And so, to see this scroll in its right context, I think, is very, very germane. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 8, this marriage covenant is very clearly articulated, and God says, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And so there you have God in the midst of his complaints against Israel, recalling this marital covenant that he had established with Israel, unique from all the other countries in the world, nations in the world. But the Bible also, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, required that a man that was divorcing his wife, he had to write a bill or certificate of divorce. He couldn't just leave her he couldn't just abandon her the, he had to present a certificate of divorce on which the complaints of the husband towards the wife were written on the scroll on that on that document now the contents were told that it was written on the front and the back which means the charges that God wrote against Israel when he wrote the scroll were so numerous that it took the entire content every piece of the document was covered with charges and I believe that was depicting this very interesting disposition in which God had so many complaints against Israel for what they had done that this, the, the document itself was evidence of what God was saying. Now, we, we begin to see this in Isaiah 50 in verse 1. Now, the timing of Isaiah's writing is very curious because Isaiah was writing about 722 B.C., and that was right before Assyria took Israel in the north. Israel had divided by the, throughout their kingdom into two, two camps or two kingdoms. There was the, the tribes of 10 Israel, to, 10 tribes to the north that was known as Israel. And then the two tribes in the south were known as Judah. And so Isaiah is writing in Isaiah 50 it, it, around 722, right before the first fall of Israel. And he says, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is, is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. He's telling Israel to the north right before they're captured and taken into captivity, I'm done with you. Now, in Jeremiah 3, now Jeremiah is a, an exilic prophet writing right before Judah goes through the same experience around 586 B.C. And so it's about 140 years after Isaiah would write to the tribes in the north. Jeremiah writes to the tribes and the two tribes in the south. He says in Jeremiah 3 and verse 8, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her, I had sent her away with a de- decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous si- sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Now, it's important that this kind of begin to kind of create a construct in which you're able to see the theme of the book. Because the book can be, I think, very easily understood along two lines. And the main one that we're looking at right here is that God is divorcing a completely unfaithful wife. He's warned them for hundreds of years that this is what he's going to do. Jesus has come in the final straw in both of these prophecies is that he would send his son, the Messiah, and they would kill him. They would reject him. And Jesus is, like in Matthew 25, he's, he's telling them these parables about this tenant owner, this, this vineyard owner, and he, he sends the son. Surely they're going to respect the son, and they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. That was the Jews. And this document is a clear bill of divorce, and God is putting away a harlot bride. And he's preparing to take a chaste one to himself, which we're going to see at the wedding feast of the Lamb in chapter 19. And so this is the landscape of much of the book. And so to miss this idea of the scroll or to speculate that it's something other than it is, is to miss a huge key, uh, an exegetical or an interpretations key that actually helps us understand the whole book. That brings us to the third part where I want to show you the horses and the horsemen. And this I'll go through relatively quickly, but it's, I think it's pretty straightforward. The first horse and the first horseman represent conquest, war and conquest. In verse 2 it says, I looked and behold a white horse, and his rider had a, had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, there's many people throughout the history of the church that actually think this is Jesus because of the description that John has of the third vision of Jesus in, in Matthew 19. I, I don't think that that's the best rendering there, because the only similarity with, with this third vision of Jesus that John records is that there's a white horse. That's the, as far as the similarity goes. And besides the fact Jesus is the one that's in heaven opening the seals. And, and so John is being summoned away from Jesus, having just opened the seal to, to look at what's going on. So I, I don't think the best understanding of this horseman is Jesus at all. I believe the best understanding of this first horseman is that this is the Roman army that is now victoriously moving from the north of Israel into the south. They've begun to capture all the towns and the the villages around, and their their main objective is to see, lay siege on Jerusalem and the Masada. Now, the Masada was a fortress built into a rock mountain that lasted for two years longer, but that was a little bit marginal by comparison to Jerusalem. They were after Jerusalem. And so uh, this, this conquest, this horse of victory, I, I, I think is best understood to be Roman. There's several reasons for that the description of the horse and its rider is that there's one armed for battle it said that its rider had a bow and he came conquering he came out conquering and the timing of this i'm going to show you is kind of interesting and so there there's a warrior that is is prepared for battle is how the how it's described now if you look at the birth pains that Jesus describes in Matthew 24 in verse Six. now that's the Olivet Discourse for those of you that can remember that in the Passion Week right before they killed Jesus they go and the disciples are sitting on Olivet and they're looking into the city there was a Kidron Valley was right between and they could go up on on the Mount of Olives and they could look into the city with that ravine in between and the disciples said look at how marvelous this temple is he said it's gonna be completely destroyed it's gonna be completely demolished and they said well when is that gonna happen and the Olivet Discourse is what follows. Well, it's, he's obviously describing the temple destruction that was going to take place in AD 70. The temple was completely devastated and the city of Jerusalem was completely demolished by the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus is saying this, he says in Matthew 24 and verse 6, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And so the, the coming of this horseman first Fits exactly with what Jesus said. He said, "You're going to hear these wars, and now all the rumors are coming from the north." Now, I'm going to introduce you today to a historical historian that was conscripted by Rome to to write about this conquest. His name was Josephus. He was a a military general for Israel in the north. He was so he was so uh, brilliant in his military strategy that when the Romans finally captured his army they executed everyone in his army but they kept him alive and they conscripted him now to travel with the Roman army and write write the history of what was going on in Israel Now, uh, there was a couple of other writers that we're going to review as we go through this but but it's really interesting because this battle has started and this gives you some sort of timing because Pax Romana was the peace of Rome. It prevailed over the whole Roman Empire for several decades, and it's starting to crumble. At the end of the, of the, of, uh, the 60s um, uh, B.C. or excuse me, A.D., you have this, this, this peace that had prevailed over the Roman Empire begins to fracture and fall apart. And it's this horseman that is now depicting it. Now what's interesting is that the, the grammar in this verse tells you that the the, the Jewish war that that Rome declared against Israel that started in February March of A.D. AD uh, 67 it probably has already started based on the grammar because it said that he came out conquering and to conquer his conquering had already begun and it was to continue on and so the white horse's conquest the second horse that I want you to, to consider that John describes here is in verse 3 and 4. It's uh, the second horse and horseman is depicting civil war. And I'm going to show you the historical context here. That He said, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth or the land so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, I believe that this is the Jewish civil war. This is the Jews fighting against one another. And so there's a simultaneous attendance of these horsemen on the earth It starts with Rome as they begin to invade from the north and move to the south. It's creating chaos among the Jews and they actually begin not only fighting with Rome, they're fighting with one another. And these factions emerge. And uh, Josephus, he, he writes of this civil war in the land that the civil war was actually worse than the carnage wrought by the romans he said it was way worse he describes the turmoil that existed within israel and particularly jerusalem as titus was making final preparations to break into the city he he began to identify two two men one was john gishala and the other was simon son of uh, giora those men were the head of two factions that were fighting against each other. They were, they were, they were ruthless in killing one another. Were, listen to what Josephus wrote of this. This is taken from his fifth book called The Wars of the Jews. He said, There were besides disorders and civil wars in every city, and all those that were at quiet from the Romans turned their hands one against the other. There was also bitter conquests between those who were fond of war and those uh, that were desirous of peace insomuch that for bar- barbarity and iniquity those of the same nation did no uh, no way differ from the romans nay it seemed to be a much lighter thing to be ruined by the romans than by themselves and so josephus said as the romans start to come down what was happening amongst the jews than worse than falling into the hands of the romans so there's the red horse the third horse is a black horse and it depicts famine. He describes it in verses 5 and 6. He said when he opened the third seal I heard the third living creature saying come and I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand like a market scales and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and uh, three quarts of barley for a denarius uh, and do not harm the oil and the wine Um, this is historically the consequence of war. Not only the activity that is going along the front, engaging with the Romans, but all that is the civil war that's engaging virtually every part of the country. As Josephus said, it it was virtually in every single city. And this famine is really the result of the war. It's destroying the crops. People can't go out and just work in their fields because they're afraid. Now, Josephus again wrote of this, and it's very interesting. Here he says, The old men, and he's writing about how severe the famine was in the city. He said, The old men who held their food fast were beaten, and the women and the women hid what they had within their hands, and if they did, their hair was torn in so doing. Nor was there any pity shown either to the aged or to the infants. They also invented terrible methods of Torah... Torments to discover where any food was, and they were these, to stop up the passages of the privy parts of the miserable wretches, and to drive sharp stakes up their anus, and a man was forced to bear what is terrible even to hear, in order to make him confess that he had but one loaf of bread, or that he might reveal a handful of barley meal that was concealed. At the end of this section, Josephus writes this in a general description. He said it is therefore impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries nor did any age uh, ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. That's an amazing commentary by a Jew that's a non-christian recording what's going on inside the city the famine was absolutely horrific they're killing one another just to gain one single loaf of bread And so the black horse is famine and the last horse is pale and it represents death with hades or hell following after it in verse 7 and 8 it says when he opened the seal, i heard the voice of the fourth living creature say come and i look and behold a pale horse and its rider the writer's name was Death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So what he's describing in this horseman's advance is the death of 25% of the people in Israel. By the time this fifth seal is open, one out of four people that you would have known are already dead or you're one of them. And so these plagues are marked in a very prescriptive way. Just like Job invading, uh, Satan rather, invading Job's life. There's a certain leash on them. They only can do so much. And that they do. Now what's really interesting here is that, as I told you earlier, this is not depicting the persecution of believers. That is going to happen and there's a record of that here. But this isn't that. This is actually... A description of God unleashing a wrath on those who refused to believe Jesus. Israel had become what was described earlier in chapters 2 and 3. Their synagogues were now synagogues of Satan. Some people say, well, how could that be? Well, it was because God used Israel to pour his truth through, like a sprinkler into the rest of the world. And I told you that in, in Matthew, when Jesus and the, all the synoptic gospels, for that matter, when it describes the death of Jesus, it describes the tearing of this thick foot curtain between the holy place and the holy of holy places is rendered in two, from the top to the bottom in which God is saying, I'm opening this up to you now. But the Jews completely put it back together again. They continued their sacrifice in spite of the fact that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 and verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible to make forgiveness of sin. So for all of those years, they were practicing a type that looked to an anti-type, the coming of Jesus. And they refused to acknowledge him. And from that point forward, they started using all the truth that they knew to mislead people. If If you went into those synagogues, they didn't use Isaiah and Ezekiel to point you to Jesus, they used to prove that Jesus was an imposter, that he was a blasphemer that deserved to die. Well, at that point, they became enemies of God. And you see, there's a, a very, very real application in this. That The, the Bible doesn't paint near the, the gray area that many of you think. And all of you stand today as either a friend of the Messiah or his enemy. And this depiction that is, is, is unfolding here, these four horsemen are bringing misery and death to the whole country, and 25% of the population of the country will not survive them. But it's just the beginning. Now, right before the fall of Jerusalem, Josephus depicts Titus, who is Vespasian's son, Vespasian has now been summoned in, in, in AD 70, uh, Vespasian has been summoned back to Rome to become the emperor, and Titus, his son, is left with the siege. And Josephus writes from inside the Roman headquarters that Joseph, uh, Titus doesn't want to destroy Israel, he doesn't want to destroy the city, and he begins to engage in what would consider very barbaric things to try to persuade them to to surrender. And this is what he says. Josephus writes that 500 per day, sometimes more, were caught by the Romans deserting the city. Titus had them crucified before the wall of the city out of cruelty. The Roman soldiers would oftentimes hang, hang them precariously from the crosses. Well, that doesn't seem so kind. But listen, he goes on and he said, So Titus commanded that the hands of those of many of those who were caught should be cut off, that they might not be thought deserters. Now what this is really saying is that if you were caught deserting the Roman military, you were immediately put to death. And so he cut off their hands that everybody would know that these aren't deserters from the Roman military. These are escapees from the city of Jerusalem. But then he takes his hands, their hands, and he said, and it might be credited on account of the calamity that they were under, and he, they sent them to these two men, Simon and John. They would put their hands in big sacks and they'd send them to John and to Simon with this exhortation that they would now at length stop their madness and not force him to destroy the city. He went around the banks that were cast up. And so Rome is now building these siege ramps and they're all around the city. And Titus would walk around on those ramps and said he, he hastened them in order to show them that the wor- that his words should be should in no long time be followed by his deeds. It goes on and it says, In answer to which the seditious cast reproaches upon Caesar himself and upon his father also, and cried out with a loud voice that they despised death and did well in preferring it before slavery, that they would do all the mischief to the Romans that they could while they still had breath in them, and that for their own city since they were as he said to be killed they had no concern about it and that the world itself would be a better temple to god than this that yet this temple would be preserved by him and that inhabited therein whom they still had for their assistance in the war assistant in the war and did therefore laugh at all his threatenings which would come to nothing because the conclusion of the whole depended upon god only these words were mixed with reproaches and with them they made a mighty clamor. Now the seditious at first gave orders that the dead should be buried. Now this is the black horse, remember, the one with death. The seditious at first gave orders that the dead should be buried, uh, buried in the, out of the public treasury. So they paid to have the dead buried as not enduring the stench of their dead bodies. But afterwards, when they could not do that, They had them cast down from the walls into the valleys below. However, when Titus, in going his rounds along those valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running out of them, he gave a groan and, spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing. I hope that paints the graphic picture it should in your mind. The events leading up to August of AD 70 were absolutely horrific. more horrific than you ever read and left behind. There were events that caused men to wonder if the world would end. Josephus is writing and Servetus, another one of the Roman historians, the writing of things that are far too graphic for me to even read in here. And they were intended to cause you to come to conclusions about sitting on the fence. I think in one sense this could quite possibly be one of those things that that should cause you a second second estimation, perhaps, a reevaluation of your whole entire life. Whose team are you really on? After all these years, if it if it isn't real, can it ever be real? Is there anything real that's there? Those should be the questions. Those are the questions that are coming from many of you. See, I think the problem in Jesus' church is that. Not only have we pushed all of these events wrongly into the future, but we refuse to see how they took place and they begin to demonstrate a character of, uh, of Him that is one uh, of an amazing, amazing Savior. And just like a faithful parent, she won't just sit idly by and allow you to, to eat candy bars for, for breakfast. She's willing to take it on the chin and to, to say, you're not going to eat that and even bear your disapproval. She's willing to stand against your affections, in other words. When you're a child, you can't help but think that how pleasant it would be to just consume all that candy in the morning. But a faithful mother, mother, just like a faithful father and a faithful God, cares too much. And your present disapproval means almost nothing in the whole scheme of things. And you, you, you see this is something that is so off-putting to many of us today because we've been presented with these silly notions of Jesus that all he wants to do is to carry out our best wishes, wishes. And I've seen many people be motivated for a few months, maybe six, maybe a year. And it seems as if if they don't see something immediately break its way into their life, then it must be not real and with some bit of integrity, I think, far more than some of you that have hung on for decades. They're able to say, if this isn't real, I'm not going to act like it's real. And they've become this mass of tens of millions of people that have given up on the church because they're tired of its charades. They're tired of, of Christians talking and pretending as if there's so much to this Christianity and there's so much to that. And you're able to say, I can't believe I can hear a pastor stand up and talk like that. Well, it's about time we begin to talk like this because the world is looking at us and they're wondering if the church has really lost her nerve because I think it has. And it's not going to change until we're able to say, then show us the real, the reality. Show us how this can actually begin to change things. And if it doesn't change things, you should have enough love for your own life to not give it away on something that has no reality. But if it is real, maybe it demands everything from you. And you see, the the gray that many of us have lived in for decades gets really small because it's real and it demands everything from us, or it's not real and it demands nothing from us. Instead of being suspended in the middle, wondering if we can be convinced. And many Christians' faith is only as good as the preacher's sermon the last week. I know that. And it's a terrible burden for me to think that I only can keep you going for another week. And if, if I'm not very good, you might not continue going. I think that's a completely false dichotomy. But you see, there's a measure of grace in this. There really is. As these things begin to unfold, Jesus is telling them, this is what is going to happen. Now, here's the answer to the first question I gave you. If you wipe this away, then what use does this have? I believe that in many of your lives there's a graciousness of God not to leave you alone. Like Thomas Brooks said, the worst smiting of all is not to be smitten. When God lets you go, And there's no recompense. There's no difficulty. There's no conviction that ever comes into your heart. And you're able to live like hell. You can present a face on Sunday and you're able to just live whichever way you want the rest of the week. If God lets you alone, then you are truly alone. But I think some of us need to feel the truth of, of Hebrews 12, that God is faithful to discipline every son that he receives, every daughter that he receives. And along with the discipline, he brings a deep, conviction of what we know is right I know that I've felt it many times in my life and I think many of you have as well you see he's writing to a group of people that it's at least 35 years since they murdered Jesus 35 years and he's telling them you need to change the question is did they did they the real question is will you alright let's take your questions why do you believe Christ is referred to as the lamb so often in this book I, I, I believe it because of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was built on that and when John the Baptist laid his eyes on him and John and, and John's Gospel, chapter 1, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this constant theme is kept before us that in him is redemption. In him there is forgiveness, but there is no forgiveness in the continuation of killing the common lamb. And so I I, I think that that's the emphasis, the underscore, that is sustained in front of us. Next question. With reference to the fourth seal, what indicates that earth refers only to Israel? Well, th- there's a scope of this that I, 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 I think begins to build upon and I, 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 th- I hope to be able to show you. There's, you, you have those two reference, both in the Hebrew and the Greek throughout the Bible. You have this reference to a term, to a word that can be referred to, have two different reference to it. One can be the whole entire earth, and the other is the land and the majority of time throughout the Old Testament and in the New the term is used to refer to Israel and so you can choose to insist on it being earth the whole global earth or you can see it in its most common reference I hope to be able to demonstrate that to you more and more in the days to come last question if the scroll in verse 1 represents God divorcing Israel, why is Jesus referred to as the line of the tribe of Ju- Judah in verse 5? That's a very good question. It has a lot to do with the progressive nature of Revelation. In other words, the prophecy uh, Judah was given the primary position as the chief tribe in Israel by Jacob's or Israel's blessing in Genesis 49 and And David will descend from that tribe, and you have this great king, but you see it 's all pointing to the to the advancement of it and sometimes when we we, we st- i 'm going to try to answer this in a way that doesn 't get too complicated um, there's a- co- a continuity to the way that scripture is building upon itself, so much so that that Peter can say in first Peter chapter one and verse ten that the salvation that is coming in the first century, he said it's something into which angels long to look because they were waiting for God to unfold all of this progressive revelation. And Jesus is the capstone of all of that. He'd say he was a cornerstone. And and yet the Jews are rejecting it. And so the whole of their system built up to this and they broke it off. And so I, I, I believe that is the reason that there is... I think a lot of disconnect in people's minds. In fact, um, I'm going to use two, two difficult terms, and I'll, I'll explain them here, that dispensational premillennialism, that was the, that was the perspective that Hal Lindsay wrote from and, and uh, uh, left behind, Tim Mahay. Um They actually are seeing two forms of salvation in the end days because of this division they're, they see that the Jews are going to get the temple mount back from the from the Muslims they're gonna re-institute the temple sacrifice in Jerusalem and God is going to be pleased by the Jews reinstituting the sacrifice but that seems kind of strange why would God honor the Jews worshiping the way they should have before Jesus and continue to reject Jesus why would they why would he honor that and yet the whole system is built upon that. And so the distinction is somewhat, is somewhat significant, I think, when you begin to see it. I believe that there's one way of salvation ever since the middle of the first century in John 14:6, when Jesus says, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And if you hang on to that old system, it's going to damn you. It's not going to save you. And so this dichotomy or this difference in this system is coming out very clearly in the balance of the book. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, thank you for the questions, by the way, today. So let's uh, pray, and Jeff's going to come up and and lead us in our worship as we would engage our communion. Father, there are many things. I this particular sermon took a lot of discipline to move through some historical material that I think is is fairly compelling it allows us to see a commencement of events that are taking place in the middle of the 1st century that perfectly coincide with the advancement of the Roman army the civil wars the famine that would follow there and the death that would result in the deaths of 25% of the people in Israel and in spite of all of that historical uh, correspondence there are many people that that don't see it that way they still see it as is horsemen that are still chomping at the bit, so to speak, to come. And I, I, I think that there's a lot of credibility in beginning to see something that took place that should greatly encourage us, not only that it's not in our own for, future in a selfish way, but to see the faithfulness of God in dealing with those who refuse to see Jesus as the Savior. And I, I, I pray that that would not be lost on us as some of those who've written in that would be able to say, well, if it isn't that, then what benefit is there? Well, I think there's plenty of benefit for us to see that Jesus is faithful and true. He's faithful and true to not only save his people, but he's faithful and true to, to deal with those who reject him. He always has been and he always will be. And so I ask that you would attend our time and you would give us a clarity of focus that would allow us Really be honest with ourselves. I, I fear that far too many people are somewhat stuck in a faith that isn't really d- pushing them forward or allowing them to go back. They're just kind of stuck. And I ask that you might give us a glimpse of this glorious thing called your kingdom that we might once again be motivated and diligent to see it come. So we thank you for our time. We commit it to you now. So we ask and pray these things in Jesus' good name.
0: Amen you've been listening to the L2 Sermon series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McKendry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com and thanks for listening.